Brother, I want to start with just a few scriptures, then we'll go ahead and I'll give you an overview of what I want to talk about. You'll probably know where I'm going as we start going through this. Let's turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 15, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, we're told here, the Apostle Paul tells us through his letter to Timothy, to study, to show yourself approved unto God. There's a command of God that he wants us to study. Well, study what? I mean, I was told all my childhood that I better study if I want to get good grades, He says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So there you go. We're we're to study the word of truth. We believe this is the word of truth, right? Now, I think maybe other religions might believe that their book or text is the word of truth. We'll get into that in a little bit, but... This is a commandment from God, isn't it? I just want to establish that. Look over here in Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Speaking about this word, God's word, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder or a part of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So there's power in this word, that this word will convict people, help people to see themselves, discern what's in their heart. So it's kind of indicating what uh, Paul is telling Timothy there, that we're to study it, that there's benefit in it. Over here in 1 Peter chapter 2, let's look at that real quickly. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. 2. Now when I was a kid, I kind of thought that, well... God will just put his, he'll let me know in my heart what's right and wrong. I didn't appreciate this, but as I, as I read these scriptures, I see that God wants us to learn about him by studying his word. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. We are told, as newborn, newborn babes, or this is babes in Christ, newly formed Christians, Desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. That, that God's word would be like food and nourishment to us. That we would grow through it. So there's benefit in it. It's important. God wants us to study this book and this word. Jesus taught from it. Let's just look at a few of these scriptures. Luke chapter 24. Let's turn over there very quickly. Luke 24. Verse 27. 
So this is this was one of Jesus' sermons. It says, "In the beginning, at Moses and uh, Luke twenty-four, verse twenty-seven. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all scriptures the things concerning himself." So what do we see from this scripture that Jesus actually? taught from the Bible, from this word, or he calls it the scriptures, or the writings, and that those writings were about him. He taught about himself through the writings of this word. Now, what writings did he have at that time? Well, he didn't have the New Testament. He had the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the writings. Go to one more here, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. So this is when Jesus was actually tempted by Satan the devil. He was tempted and then, but he answered and said here in verse 4, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, that we are to live by God's word. So I can give you more scriptures, many more scriptures, where God instructs us, not just us Christians, but all of mankind, that we are to study this word and that it would be beneficial to us. We're commanded to do so. God's word is special. It reveals to us not only God's plan, but many other things that we would benefit from. It reveals secrets about how we're made, about our earth, what God's doing here. It's a tremendous book. Now, the reason I'm going through this is because I was reminded of a family member of mine. We were in conversation at a family gathering. I'm not going to tell you who it was. But I'm sure you all have a similar experience. I wouldn't be surprised if you do. But I was talking about, you know, what we believe. He was asking me. And I said, well, we believe, you know, we try to just keep the Bible. And his answer was, oh, that's just a bunch of stories. That's just a bunch of stories. I don't believe in the Bible. Now, there's a lot of people that actually believe that. In fact, when I was doing some research for this sermon, I came across a whole bunch of atheist sites, and that's the point that they want to make, that this really, just a bunch of stories written by men, it's not real. In fact, some of the people that would would be considered scholars and leaders of thought would probably laugh at us, that we actually would think that this is God's word. Just a bunch of fables and stories, isn't it? Just a bunch of some people that were in charge of a religion put a whole bunch of things together and they made it into a book that documents their religion. So is the Bible really just a bunch of stories? Is it more than that? Can we prove it? How can you prove it? The first thing I want to talk about, brethren, is that I want to go through a couple interesting facts about the Bible 
just to show that one thing is for certain, whether you believe this is God's word or not, this book is unique. There is no book that even comes close to this book. You could, I don't know how many millions of books have been printed and written throughout history. There's been historical books, there's been books of poetry, there's been autobiographies, biographies, whatever it is. You can take all of those books, put them in a room, and then this book would deserve a building all by itself. It stands alone. I'll, sh- I'll share with you why I say that. Now, some of what I got here, and I reference a couple different um, sources. Just in dis- full disclosure, one of the, the sources that I found very helpful is a, a book from Josh McDowell. I think that was his name. He wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And in, the, in the, that book, he goes through some very good information about how the Bible was actually uh, pulled together, where it came from, who decided what's in this book, how did they go about deciding it. He goes into detail of even what type of paper it was written on originally, the original scrolls how it was preserved, how it was copied, how many manuscripts were made, etc., etc. It's very interesting. I think anyone who wants to learn more about this book, this unique book, would do well to go ahead and, and, and look through that book as a reference and learn more about the Bible. I'm going to go through a couple things that I learned there and from some other sources about this. So some interesting things about the Bible... would imply that it is historically accurate. So I'm going to talk about history for a second, because this is one of the the accounts that makes this book unique. If this is just a bunch of stories for men, then clearly you wouldn't think that it would be that historically accurate. Can you build history from this? You think of how is history built? You ever wonder about where, how we know what happened in the Greek Empire? How do we know who the emperors were and what battles happened when and who won? Well, we know it because that was in our textbook in school, right? Somehow it just got there. You ever wonder how historians piece together history? Let me give you an example. If I were to tell you that I gave a sermon at the Feast of Tabernacles this past year, would you believe me? You believe me? How would you validate that? Well, maybe if you had an eyewitness or two that was there. Darren, you were there. Did I do a sermon? All right. You were there. Did I do a sermon? There you go, Terry. Who else was there? So there's, you know, just this past week, and there's four or five eyewitnesses that I gave a sermon last week. I'm going to tell you another story. So when I was a kid... I went fishing all the time. I loved to fish. And I went fishing in one of uh, the ponds at my house. And my buddy caught a catfish. It was a huge catfish. And when he stepped on it, he had the little tail, the little thing on the side of the catfish, went right through his toe and punctured his foot. Now, do you believe that? 
My dad says, no, he doesn't believe it. How would you verify that? Well, maybe we could talk to my buddy, John. He could tell you if it was true. There was an eyewitness. I can't produce an eyewitness, so it's a little bit more skeptical. That happened a lot long, you know, much, much longer ago. What if I told you there was a time when I was, had an opportunity when I was overseas where I actually went to lunch with a famous person, a guy named uh, Kiefer Sutherland. When I was overseas, I met Kiefer Sutherland, and uh, actually, we went and had beers together, and then he invited me to, for lunch and took me out to lunch. Now, do you believe me? My dad says, no way. You, know, you all know who Kiefer Sutherland is? He's a famous actor. He played in that uh, show 24. So I would be able to prove that that indeed happened because I could call up some of my friends in the Marines and they would be eyewitnesses to it because they were with me. And I could give you some more detail. Maybe we could look at some of the, the documents at the American Embassy that show that there was a report written that I lost my walkie-talkie when I was out with Kiefer Sutherland and there was actually an investigation that happened that showed that I had lost this thing and that they documented it. And you see what I'm saying? Now that there's a document that I could, if I wanted to produce from the American government in some filing cabinet somewhere that shows and proves that I had lunch with Kiefer Sutherland because that indeed did happen. He was over there in Vienna filming the movie Four Musketeers, or Three Musketeers, and we met. I was a Marine there, and he liked the Marines because he just completed the movie A uh, Few Good Men, and we hung out. But I could verify that by eyewitness and by documentation. So how does historians, how do historians know what happened thousands of years ago? Well, just like that, they have to have eyewitnesses and they have to have documentation. Now, anyone could just forge a document. So the more authentic, original copies of those documents that they can find from different places validates the story of what really happened. I want to share this with you. How do we gauge the authenticity of a historical document? First, we need to find out the time span elapsed. This is from a, a website, uh, africanaquatics.co.za. I don't know where it was. It was um, the, they had an, uh, an article here called The Authenticity of the Bible, and they go into how historical documents are authenticated. It says, first, we need to find out the time span elapsed from when it happened, when it was written, to when the first copy was found. So if something happened and you didn't find a copy of a document that recorded for a hundred years, you probably wouldn't believe it as much, would you? So that's the first thing you do. The shorter the time span from when something happened and there was a document found, the more authentic that is. Secondly, you need to find out how many original manuscripts there were. The more manuscripts confirming the same story especially written at the same time by different people in different places, 
the more you will believe that that account was actually true. Does that make sense? You following me? All right, so how do we know what happened in ancient Greece? Or let's, let's do uh, ancient Rome, because this is probably one of the most authentic documents in history. So Livy's Roman history, he writes about Roman history. It was written around 59 B.C. to A.D. 700. Its earliest copy that they could find was 900 years later. And they found 20 copies. So 20 copies is pretty good. Some of the other ancient history was pieced together by works of Herodotus, Thucydides, Tacitus, some of these other historians. Just an example, Herodotus's work about the history of ancient Greece was written around 488 to 428 B.C., Its earliest copy was found in A.D. 900, so over 1,300 years later, and there was eight copies. So from eight copies that are 1,300 years from when the actual occurrences happened, we've pieced together Greek history. Now, there's many events that are documented This is actually part of the writing of the Bible as a historical record. If we just look at the New Testament and say, okay, how does the New Testament compare in terms of its authenticity to some of these other documents of history? Well, the New Testament was written around 400, or I mean, sorry, 40 to 100 AD. Its earliest copy was around 130. That's the earliest document that we have, a copy that was made at, so about 30 years after. Full manuscripts were found, earliest copies around 350 A.D., so there's only about a 300-year time span. And someone take a guess how many copies were found in that time frame? A hundred. Who else? One? One copy? Anyone else have a guess of how many copies of these original copies from around 300 to 350 A.D. are found? Over 25,000. Compare, compare that to the 20 from Livy's Roman history or the 8 from Herodotus. 25,000 copies that document and are consistent and reflect the New Testament. Now, if you just look at purely you know, the, the rules of historical authenticity, you would say that in comparison, Greek and Roman histories could be considered a fable. We know very little. You would clearly say that the the accounts of the New Testament clearly are much more authentic as from a historical perspective. Think of some of the other things where it happened. The New Testament was found in 14 different languages. Years following the New Testament, there's more than 36,000 quotations from early church patriarchs. 
So we start to think of non-New Testament writings, people like Josephus and some of these other historians that lived around 100, 200, 300 A.D., there are so many references that validate the events of the New Testament, it pales, other, other texts pale in comparison to it. The other aspect of the authenticity and the historical accuracy of the Bible goes toward the geo- geological record. Let me ask this question. We would all agree that there are many people in the world that would like nothing more than to prove this Bible wrong, wouldn't they? If they could find one geological find that could categorically prove this text wrong, do you think that would be obscured or would that be on the front headlines of every news channel? Of course. Yet, there hasn't been one geological find that contradicts the Bible record. In fact, every time they find something new, it tends to corroborate and reinforce the authenticity of the Bible. Here's a couple examples. The Elba tablets discovered in 1970s in northern Syria. These are documents written on clay tablets from around 2,300 years B.C., 2,300 B.C. They demonstrate the personal and place names in the patriarchal accounts are genuine. For example, in Elba was the name Canaan, a name critics once said was not used at that time and was used incorrectly in early chapters of the Bible. So there was a critique. People didn't believe that uh, when the Bible uh, referred to Canaan that they were wrong. Well, these Elba tablets showed that here the tablets refer to all five cities of the plain mentioned in Genesis 14, previously assumed to have been mere legends, and it refers to Canaan, corroborating that the Bible is true. The Hittites were once thought to be a biblical legend until their capital and records were discovered in Turkey. This one's interesting. John Garstang in the 1930s discovered the walls of Jericho and he saw that the walls fell suddenly and outwardly, which is unique, so that the Israelites could clamor over the ruins into the city validated and corroborated by Joshua, chapter 6. In 1993, archaeologists uncovered a 9th century B.C. inscription at Tel Dan, the words carved into a chunk of basalt, referred to the house of David and the king of Israel. So that's 900 years B.C., a geological find that speaks of the house of David, the king of Israel. Another king who was in doubt was Belshazzar, the king of Babylon. Named in Daniel chapter 5, the last king of Babylon was Nabonidus. According to recorded history, the tablet was found showing that Belshazzar was his son. And I could continue to go on. Just think about the New Testament. Here's a, a quote from Josephus. Now, who was Josephus? He was a historian, a Roman historian, He was born in 37 A.D. He was one of these non-writers of the New Testament who corroborated the New Testament. He wrote 20 books uh, called The Antiquities of the Jews. He referred to Jesus in one of these, his Antiquities, 1863. I'm just going to refer to it here. It says, at this time, this is a quote from Josephus's 
writings. At this time, there was a wise man called Jesus. Now remember, this is not the Bible. This is a secular account of history. An eyewitness. At this time, there was a wise man called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah, concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders, and the tribe of the Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to this day. So there's just one example of an eyewitness historical account of the New Testament. Another thing that makes this book unique is that it's written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, over three different continents over 1,500 years by over 40 different authors. So some would say this is just a compilation of a bunch of stories of men. So imagine taking 40 different authors from every walk of life The Bible is made up of historical accounts, prophecy, poetry, songs, memoirs, biographies, autobiographies, readings of law, allegory, proverbs, all kinds of literature. So take all kinds of literature about a topic. Let's just pick one topic. Say we did a topic of the climate. Nothing controversial. Take 40 authors of today... And say we take everything written about the climate over 1,500 years and we wanted to compile that into one book. Do you think that those writings would be completely consistent and aligned with each other? All right, let's make it simpler. Let's take 10 authors over 50 years. And we put their, their works together, their writings together. Would it make a single story? Would they perfectly match and corroborate each other with no discrepancies? All right, let's just take three people. What are the chances that three people would write three stories? There would be a lot of similarities similarities if they just picked a single topic, but would they perfectly correlate and tell a story? That's a compilation of writings. Excuse me. So let's consider the Bible. Three different languages, three different continents, over 1,500 years by over 40 different authors from different walks of life, in some cases who never knew the others even existed. Yet, cover to cover, from Genesis all the way to Revelation... There is a single story. A single story of Christ. The Old Testament talks about Christ, prophesies about Christ. The New Testament reveals Christ. It's his account. Revelation tells about what Jesus is going to do in the future. 
There's a single story thread. And with all the skeptics out there, they have not yet been able to produce a definitive uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Misalignment of anything in the Bible. It completely matches. I want to read this. This is interesting. I like how this gentleman put it. This was titled from an article I found called Is the Bible Really the Word of God? www.godandscience.org It's an excerpt from talking about the Bible's uniqueness and unity. This is a quote from C.J. Sharp. Quote, If a fragment of stone were found in Italy, a little fragment of stone, another in Asia Minor, another in Greece, another in Egypt, and on and on until 66 different fragments have been found, and if when put together, so now you get all these fragments from all around the world, these pieces of stone, and you put them together and you start to realize, wait, this piece fits here and this piece fits here and this one goes here like this. And you start to piece these together and you fit them together and they perfectly fit together making a perfect statue of Venus de Milo. There is not an artist or scientist but would arrive immediately at the conclusion that there was originally a sculptor who conceived and carved the statue. Right? The very lines and perfections would probably determine which of the great ancient artists carved the statue. Not only the unity of the scriptures, but their lines of perfection suggest one far above any human as the real author. Take the book of Isaiah, the book of Daniel, align it with the book of Revelation, Jesus' teachings, all the way back to how everything overlays to the literal experiences of the ancient Israelites as they came out of Egypt and how their life experience overlays perfectly with God's commandments and all the prophecies, you start to weave this together and realize that all these 60 plus different authors writing these documents, when it comes together, how can you say that this is just a bunch of stories? The Bible continues to be the number one greatest seller in human history. I think if you can sell over a million copies of something, it's, a, it's tremendously successful. I don't know the exact number, but my mind's eye brings me to a number of over 200 million copies of the Bible. It is the longest running bestseller in human history. It's amazing. I can go on and on and on about how this book stands a universe apart from every other book in human history. Maybe someday my family member will hear this and I would just say, no, the Bible is not just a bunch of stories. It is not just a bunch of stories. It is one of the most authentic historical documents that we have. And it's much more. I want to go through a few other things. I think this is interesting. 
The Bible, actually, I think some of you that are in the medical industry might find this interesting. The Bible is unique in that it actually reveals secrets of science that mankind and its wisdom has only recently discovered. So when did we discover that the earth was not flat? What's the conventional thinking? How long ago did we discover the earth was, was not flat? 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. That's how I remember that. Okay, 1400s. Before that, we were thinking that the earth was flat, right? How about medical science? When did people figure out that germs existed? Anyone in the medical field know when human beings finally figured out that you can catch a disease? through these little things called germs? It was pretty recently. How about the climate? When did human beings and scientists start to understand where rain comes from and the whole cycle of our climate? Pretty recent. I want to go through a few things. This is from BibleEvidences.com. This talks about advanced medical knowledge revealed through your Bible. In numerous instances, the Bible contains medical information that far predates man's discoveries. Here's a few examples. It was in the 19th century or the 1800s that Louis Pasteur demonstrated in his germ theory of disease that most infectious diseases were caused by microorganisms originating from outside the body. So just in 1800s, this brilliant scientist discovered that diseases come from germs. Now that we know that, you might say, hey, let's wash our hands, as my wife reminds me 25 times a day. Being a nurse, very good that she does that, though, because we don't want to get sick, because we don't want to get germs. But before this, you think people were washing their hands? No. The Israelites, we find in Numbers, chapter 19, Leviticus chapter 11, chapter 15, Deuteronomy chapter 23, God, in revealing knowledge to the Israelites, I mean, if you go back to Leviticus, you read about leprosy, he's got a whole chapter on it with details of how to treat someone with leprosy. It's literally like reading a medical journal if you read it. A lot of detail. But God instructed them to wash themselves after touching a dead body, that they would be unclean, that they were to wash their hands with water, that if their clothes touched it, they were to burn their clothes. The Israelites were instructed to bury their human waste. In contrast, it says here in this article that Egyptian peers and some of the other people actually thought that some of their medicine and remedies um, pretty much consistently consisted of some amount of human excrement. They thought that if you wanted to heal something, you took some of your waste and rubbed it on it. So that's the world 
the Israelites, praise God, actually told them, no, 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 you don't want to touch that. Bury it. Get it out of your camp. And they did. Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, So, like I was mentioning, you can read about leprosy, specifically in verse 52 of Leviticus 13, God talks about how if, a, if leprosy gets on clothing or even on a wall, on a wall, you're to burn that wall down. You're to burn the clothing. Kind of indicative that God was teaching them about germ theory. See, if you don't believe in germs, know about germs, you wouldn't think that someone that has leprosy could touch something and then all of a sudden you could come back and touch it and get it. But God instructed them, if you have leprosy and it has weeping, you know, it's, it's, he even told them that if it's white, it's not contagious. Now, they're clean. But if it's got some raw flesh, then they're unclean. You don't want to go near people like that. And if it touches their clothes, burn the clothing. Pretty amazing. This was hundreds of years B.C. God was revealing this medical knowledge. Told laws of quarantine. God said in Numbers to use hyssop as a purifying agent. And we know that hyssop oil has been shown to contain antifungal and antibacterial properties. And it can go on and on. Talk about science. Let's talk about, I mentioned the flat earth. In Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Isaiah lived about 700 years B.C. So 1640 plus 700, 2100, over 2100 years before Columbus finally figured out or proved that the earth wasn't flat, Isaiah knew that the earth wasn't flat. In Job, we're told that God, he stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. Job knew that the earth was hanging out in the middle of space. The ancient Greeks and Romans thought that all those things up there were gods. It's amazing when you start to get into this, the revealed knowledge and science that was revealed thousands of years to certain people before modern scientists finally figured it out. Is this book just a bunch of stories? Maybe one of the most compelling things that we could look at about this book that makes it unique is described over here in Isaiah chapter 46. Let's turn there. Isaiah chapter 46. I'm going to go through a few scriptures here. He says here in verse 46, Verse 3, we'll start. Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, 
And all the remnant of the house of Israel, so that's all of the Israelites, not just the Jews, which are born by me from the, the belly, which are carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and even to whore hairs will I carry you, I have, so until old age, I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. To whom will you liken me, God says. Here's a challenge. He says, listen, Israel, who's like me? Now, there were all these other people out there that were worshiping all kinds of other gods, false gods. They were worshiping statues that they made out of gold and things like that. Some people were worshiping trees. God says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Talking about these other people, they lavish gold out of the bag, they weigh silver in the balance, and they hire a goldsmith, and they make it a god, and they fall down, and they worship it. And I picture this, you know, no disrespect or anything, but I picture when I was in Thailand, I saw this Buddhist temple with all these little gold flakes all over it. People sitting down praying to this big Buddha. So here he's talking about making these man-made gods. They bear him upon the shoulder. They carry him and set him in his place. And he stands from his place shall he not remove. Yea, one shall cry unto him, yet can he not answer, nor save him out of his trouble. Remember this and show yourselves men. Bring it again to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, kind of referring to history. Remember the former things of old? And there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. So God's going to now declare to all humankind that he is unique. Why? Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning. In other words, none of these other gods are going to tell you what's going to happen in the future. See, I'm unique because I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do my pleasure. Referring to the power of God. How does God know the future? Well, he knows he's so powerful that if he wants at some point in time, let me say this. So if I say, in 30 seconds I'm going to lift up my Bible, I have power to do that, don't I? I just predicted the future, didn't I? Now, God could have stopped me, but he didn't, thank God. But you see the principle there? Does God predict the future, know the future? Or is he just so powerful that when he says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen, because when the time comes, I'm going to make it happen. He will bring it about. That kind of gets into the whole topic of predestination and everything else. See, God didn't know what Abraham was going to do. He said, now I know after Abraham made his decision with Isaac. But God tells us right here in Isaiah that he will tell us the end from the beginning, meaning there are certain events that he is going to bring about that are going to prove that he is God. And those events being documented in this book 
can help to prove the authenticity of this book. The Bible tells us how we got here. It tells us why we're here. It tells us where we're going. And the prophecies that God tells us in this book prove that it's inspired by him. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 21. Turn back there if you want. Produce your cause, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reason, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth... Bring them forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things what they be, that we may consider them and and know the latter of them, or declare us things for to come. Show the things that are to come thereafter, that we may know that you are gods, yea, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. In other words, God is mocking every other false god there is. He's challenging all these people that believe in different religions Hey, have your gods predict the future. I'm going to go to a couple prophecies. Brethren, there are so many prophecies in this Bible, if you take the time to study it, that you can prove that have already happened. Hundreds of them. And you could prove it from history, from the archaeological, archaeological record, I want to go to one of them right now. I want to turn back to Isaiah chapter 44. Let's turn back a few chapters to Isaiah chapter 44. Now, I want to talk about the time here. So in in my Bible, the study Bible, I can go to the front of Isaiah. And I can see a timeline here. So I know that the book of Isaiah, Isaiah lived between 740 and 680 B.C. Am I going to prove that to you now? No, but there are many historians and theologians that came before me that you can go to, you can go to the library and prove that Isaiah lived around 700 B.C. Okay? Just keep that in mind. 700 B.C. So around 700 years before Christ, Isaiah... And chapter 44 starts to tell a prophecy about Jacob or Israel. How it's going to be taken captive and how there's going to come a time in the future after it's taken captive in Babylon that there's going to be a king that arises, or in Persia, I'm sorry, a king that arises that tells them to go back to Jerusalem and helps them re, you know, come back to Jerusalem and Come back to their homeland. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24. Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, and he that formed you from the womb. It's interesting how many times God talks about how we're formed from the womb. That's a different topic. It says, I am the Lord that makes all things. It stretches forth the heavens alone. Again, God is declaring his divinity here as the creator that spreads abroad the earth myself that frustrates the tokens of the liars and makes diviners mad, that turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolish, that confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers. In other words, he's saying, listen up, I'm going to give you another proof that says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited and to the cities of Judah, 
you shall be built, and I will raise up decayed places thereof. In other words, Judah will be rebuilt. That says to the deep, by dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. Thus says of Cyrus, now he actually names a person that isn't even born yet. Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built. And to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. Now after this, at around the year 580, we can read in Jeremiah how Jerusalem was actually taken captive in Persia, or in Babylon, sorry, 70 years. They were taken away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was barren. There was nothing there. And we can go over here in 2 Chronicles now. Fast forward in time. Let's go forward. About 160 years now. To 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Second Chronicles chapter 36. And we can see when was Chronicles written? Or when did this king live? I can go to the timeline here and see that Chronicles was actually, or the occurrences in Chronicles were around 540 B.C. Go to chapter 36 here, Second Chronicles. There we go. Cyrus of Persia makes a decree around 538 B.C. So let's go to verse 36 here. Start here in verse 18. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. Who is this person? And they burnt the house of God and break down the wall of Jerusalem and burnt all the places thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped... Okay, so this is when they were taken captive. Verses 18 through 21 here, talking about how Israel was taken captive. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they, they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. So let's go back to verse 17 because I I think I started verse too late just to give some context here. In verse 17, Therefore he brought upon them the king of the the Chaldees who slew their young men. So the king of the Chaldees ended up taking Israel captive in Babylon until Persia took over. It says in verse 20, And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, for as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. So for seventy years, it says, that Jerusalem was not inhabited. Now in verse 22, 
Now in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so here's this person, Cyrus, who was actually named a hundred and sixty-some years earlier by Isaiah. Remember the prophecy in Isaiah said that Cyrus would be God's servant who brought Israel back to Jerusalem. So here we see, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God have given me, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is there among you all of his people. The Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. In other words, the decree... The Isaiah prophesied that would be given by Cyrus actually occurred. And you can corroborate this through secular history of when these men lived. That's just one example. I can give you more. We can talk about the city of Tyre. You can read about that in Ezekiel chapter 26, where Ezekiel says, or God says that the city of Tyre would be destroyed, that the mainland part of Tyre would be laid waste. And that it would be thrown into the sea. And we could read about how Alexander the Great, many years later, conquered the city of Tyre, destroyed the city. And there was an island. People lived out on the island as well. Took everything from the mainland and threw it into the sea, made a causeway so he could actually get out and fight in the island. And today, in the city of Tyre, is a ruin where that city existed. You can read about that in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Many more prophecies. You can talk about the life of Jesus Christ. There were over 300 references and 61 major prophecies of the Old Testament that were fulfilled in Christ. He'd be the descendant of of King David, born in Bethlehem. His own people would reject him. The price of his betrayal would be 30 pieces of silver. This was in Zechariah, hundreds of years before Christ, God prophesied that people would be casting lots for his garments for 30 pieces of silver, and it, and it happened and is documented. He would suffer execution without breaking any of his bones. His hands and feet would be pierced. We could read about that in Psalm chapter 22, Zechariah chapter 12. He would be mocked. His garments would be parted and lots cast. Vinegar would be drunk. We could read about that in Psalm, hundreds of years B.C. And the list goes on. Harold Hartzler, an American scientific, or, uh, the American Scientific Affiliation, calculated the odds of only eight of these prophecies being fulfilled in one man's life, that the odds would be one in ten to the 17 zeros. 100 million billion. In other words, that it's impossible. There are so many proofs of the authenticity of this Bible that for someone to say that it's just a bunch of stories, giving them the benefit of the doubt, they're just ignorant. They just haven't taken the time to read it and study it. Or just haven't taken the time to consider what this book is. 
If someone has read it and studied it and still says it's a bunch of stories, then just like God says, he takes the wise and makes them fools. They're fools. We're told to study, to think, to meditate on God's word. God gave us minds. He says, come, let me reason with you. He wants us to think and reason. When you meditate and start to think about the creation, the way this book was put together, the uniqueness and miracles surrounding it, the many, many prophecies that have been fulfilled that you can prove, if you take the time, brethren, go to the library, go to your public library and start looking up some of these secular historical documents that prove the Bible, it'll strengthen your faith. See, the benefit of understanding and having this Bible really become authentic to you is it helps God become real. And when God becomes real, you have assurance and peace. God gives us much, much irrefutable proof that he is different, that he is God, and that this book, his word, is the truth, brethren. When skeptics say what makes you right, all you have to do, brethren, is just challenge them to look at the evidence. You just look at it, look at the evidence, you would agree that this is an amazing, an amazing book. There's nothing like it on earth, and we are truly blessed, truly blessed that God is opening our minds to it, teaching us his truth through this word, and it's a great blessing, brethren, that it doesn't just sit on our shelves. May it be a blessing to you and that you continue to study this word and appreciate it and meditate on it so that it has an impact on you and your life.